Today's scripture reading is taken from Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. If you have your pew Bible, it's on page 47, or you can follow me uh, on the screen. Moses went back to Jethro's father-in-law and said to him, Please let, my, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had, had them ride a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zephorah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, so let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of Lord and which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he has commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord's, Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down their heads and worshipped. This is God's word. Please remain standing as we continue our worship. I invite you to find your Bibles again or use the Bible in the rack in front of you. Make your way back to Exodus chapter 4. And let's pray as we uh, open to God's word. Gracious Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who listen. Would you open our hearts this morning as we open your word? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see you? And would you take your word and apply it to our hearts, God, today? In Jesus' name, amen. About three years ago... Um, we were hiking in the mountains, White Mountains of New Hampshire, uh, kind of along the Pemigewasset River with a few friends of ours, and we are just getting started on the trail that we were about to do, and all of a sudden we hear uh, a woman yelling, help, 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 and we turn around, and, and she's there holding a child and, and not... Um, not worried about herself. She's pointing at 
something in the river, yelling, help, help, help. And, and so we turn and we look over there, and there's a little boy who had slipped into the river and was struggling to get out. And of course, everyone kind of rushes over to the river's edge to try and help this boy, but there was one person who jumped straight into the river to then hoist the young boy out. And of course, that was the child's mother. And so, you know, of all of the people rushing to rescue the boy, what was it that caused this one person to be willing to move heaven and earth, whatever it takes, in order to rescue him? The very obvious answer is the fact that that was her son. This morning, we're going to see in our passage that same love that motivates God, that same passion that causes God to be willing to move heaven and earth to rescue Israel because Israel is his son. And that identity is something that not only does God take seriously, but he expects his children to take seriously as well. Now, if you're just joining us, we are uh, partway into our journey through the book of Exodus, um, second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, which tells both the story of how a small people group of Israel becomes this great nation, but more than that, it tells the story of how God saves his people for his glory, for his worthy reputation. And... uh, Last couple of mornings that we were in Exodus, we looked at how God called Moses to be his servant, to lead his people out of slavery. Moses, whom we learned early on, uh, is a Hebrew slave. He was born a Hebrew slave in Egypt and yet raised as Egyptian royalty, uh, only to be rejected by both Egypt and Israel the moment he tried to help his people, and who has then for the last 40 years lived in obscurity in the land of Midian as a sojourner. So God calls this Moses of all people to go back to Egypt to lead the people of Israel out of slavery and into the land that God had promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, God heard the cries of his people in their slavery. He remembered and was faithful to his covenant, and so he sent Moses And as we looked at last week, Moses was not exactly on board with that plan. Uh, He came up with several objections as to why he was not the right person uh, to go. And each of those objections, God answered, not by saying, hey, Moses, you are so great and you're so smart and you're such a, you know, you've got so much potential. He didn't point to anything in Moses. Instead, he pointed to the promise that he, the Lord, the I am, would be with Moses, and that that was what qualified him and authorized him and and equipped him to do the role God was calling him to do, to lead his people out of slavery. And so we we came to the end of that conversation at at the burning bush last Sunday, and we didn't really find out how Moses would respond. You know, it was objection after objection, and finally, you know, God answered all of his objections, and so what will Moses do? Will he stay in Midian, or will he go? Will he trust God, or will he turn and run? And as we look at the rest of chapter 4 this morning, we find our answer. Moses does, in fact, step out in obedience and go back to Egypt. 
And the story we have before us unfolds in, in kind of what you might call four short vignettes, four sections to it that are each kind of these little, short, somewhat self-contained stories that, that move the bigger story along. The first and the last section, so verses 18 to 20 and verses 27 to 31, they, they uh, supply a sort of confirmation to Moses' call. First from his father-in-law Jethro, kind of sees and, and confirms that this call. And then second from his brother Aaron and the elders of Israel when he finally gets to Egypt. And so there's encouragement on either side of our story this morning. But then the, the middle two sections, uh, which are a little bit harder to understand, seem to show us the consequence of God's plan. What's really at stake in his plan to save his people from Egypt, what the Exodus is all about. And it has to do with Israel's relationship to God as his firstborn son. That's what's at stake in all of this. And so what I want to do this morning is, is look at the beginning and the end first, the confirmation of Moses' call on either side, and then spend most of our time in the middle section and the consequence of his call. What's at stake in the Exodus? Why is God willing to act so decisively to save his people? So if you look with me at chapter 4, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. So if you think about this request, it had to strike Jethro as pretty odd. For the last 40 years, ever since Moses saved Jethro's daughters at the well back in Exodus chapter 2, for the last 40 years, he's been part of this guy's family. He has been tending his sheep. He married his daughter. He's raising his grandkids. And now, all of a sudden, out of the blue, he wants to go back to Egypt and check on his family to see whether they're still alive, as he puts it. That's a little weird. And Moses is not exactly forthcoming with his reason for wanting to go back. He doesn't tell him everything he saw at the burning bush. He has this somewhat elusive request. I want to see if they're still alive. I want to see if they are well. Uh, and, and we're not exactly sure why he didn't kind of lay out the whole plan before Jethro. Uh, perhaps he didn't want him to worry. Perhaps he was afraid he would say no. Or perhaps he's not even sure if God's actually going to show up. But for whatever reason, we know that, that as, as hard as it is for him to take on board his call, he's actually stepping out in the right direction. He's, he's getting ready to go. And Jethro gives his permission, uh, confirming God's call without even really realizing it. And, and, and then to add to that, God reiterates his call again, verse 19 and reassures Moses that, that those who had previously sought his life are now dead. It's easy to forget that the last time Moses showed his face in Egypt, he had a death sentence. And so this is a big deal to go back, and, and God is giving him every confirmation he can, uh, but Moses still has to step out in faith. And so, so he gets Jethro's blessing, uh, which is maybe surprising. God reiterates his call that you don't have to worry about those who sought your life when you go back there. They're not around anymore. And so in verse 20, Moses takes off with his wife and his two sons, and he heads back to Egypt. 
And there's this little line at the end of verse 20 that stands out. And he took with him the staff of God. That's this confirmation. The staff, if you remember from last week, the staff that was at one point just a normal, everyday shepherding staff that God used to do this incredible sign of turning it into a snake and then back into a staff, and, and which God explicitly instructed him, when you go back, take the staff of God with you, with which you will do all of the signs. So Moses taking the staff is the narrator signaling he's not just going back to check on whether his family's alive. He is going back in obedience to God with the mission God has given him to lead the people out of Egypt. He's stepping out in obedience and faith. And if we skip ahead to verse 27, we see that while God was preparing Moses in Midian, he was also preparing his brother Aaron back in Egypt to go and meet him. So verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met with him, met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Now, we don't know how well Moses knew his biological brother. Uh, he seems to have had some relationship with him because he's not thrown off guard when God says, hey, you've got a brother Aaron. He speaks well. I'll send him too. Uh, that didn't seem to strike Moses. You mean I've got a family? He didn't react like that. So he obviously had some knowledge of Aaron and Aaron had some knowledge of him. Uh, he was excited to see him. And so there's this reunion here uh, and, and the narrator doesn't waste a whole lot of time uh, getting down to business. Moses starts telling him, okay, this is what you've got to say, and this is what you've got to do when we go before Pharaoh. Um, Moses tells him the, the sign, and, and together they go and they gather the elders of Israel. And in verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is an incredible confirmation that God has not forgotten his people. As miserable as the last four centuries have been, God is acting on behalf of his people again. And it's confirmation for Moses that, that you know, the people listened to him and Aaron. They believed them. It's also confirmation for the people of God that he has really seen their suffering. He, he is sending Moses. He's validating his servant with these signs. There is a renewed hope in Israel. God has not forgotten. It's, it's like when the, when the allied forces uh, would drop over the prison camps, uh, flyers announcing that, that the war was ended and they were going to be set free soon. That's what this scene is kind of like. Here's a message in advance that God is going to come and free us. And so they do what you only could do, the only proper response. They bow their heads and worship God. He has not forgotten them. He's going to act for their salvation. They are finally going to get to go home. But what will it take to go from the announcement of their release to actually setting out and, and heading home? What's it going to take to actually get them out of Egypt and on their way back to the land of promise? 
what's really at stake in God's mighty act of deliverance. Well, in between these two scenes of confirmation, you have two other short vignettes that illustrate the consequence of God's action. What is at stake in the Exodus? In verses 21 to 23, God tells Moses what he's supposed to do and say before Pharaoh and why. And then in verses 24 to 26, you have this rather obscure event along the way where God actually seeks to take the life of Moses or perhaps the life of his son. Uh, Very odd little scene. But together, these two scenes show us the gravity and the significance of God's deliverance of Israel. What's at stake? What's the Exodus really about? What is God accomplishing? And it all has to do with their identity as his firstborn son. So look at verse 21 with me, God's instructions to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. There is a lot going on in those short verses. Uh, A lot that strikes us there. And, And perhaps the first thing that strikes us as surprising is the reason that God wants Moses to work these signs in the presence of Pharaoh. It's not to convince Pharaoh to let Israel go. It's the opposite. It's in order to harden his heart. Now, we're going to see that phrase, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh hardened his own heart several more times in the chapters ahead. And and so we'll talk more about it when we get to those. But it seems like a really strange strategy here. Uh, Why have Moses go through all the theatrics of these signs and plagues, you know, the frogs and the blood and the boils and the gnats, if instead of convincing Pharaoh to release Israel, it actually dissuades him. What's the point? It's kind of a bad game plan. We will discover several reasons for why God is is acting uh, that way in the chapters ahead. And the biggest one is that he is making his name known to Pharaoh. But we see one reason right here in our passage this morning, that God is not trying to convince Pharaoh to change He is preparing him for judgment. That's what's going on in these signs. God is preparing Pharaoh for the judgment that he's going to bring on him. God will get his glory by saving Israel from slavery and by judging Egypt for their sin. Now, the idea of God's judgment is uh, something that often makes us feel pretty uncomfortable today. Uh, It can feel pretty harsh, especially when you consider the form that this judgment takes here in this story, that if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Why is God so passionate about delivering Israel and so deliberate in judging Egypt that he would take on this very stern form of judgment? 
Well, the answer has to do with who Israel is. God's firstborn son. Before Moses is to say anything else to Pharaoh, he is to make this announcement. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God's plan to rescue Israel has to do, everything revolves around their identity as his child, as his children. Their relationship to God and the role that they are called to play in the world as his firstborn son. He says, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel has a unique relationship with God, his son, They have a unique role in the world. They are called to serve him. And it's this relationship and this role that moves God in his love to bring wrath on his on their oppressors. God's love and his wrath are not at odds with each other. His wrath for Israel's assailants flows out of his love for Israel, his son. One author puts it this way. To Pharaoh, the Hebrews were lowly slaves, but to God, they were beloved sons. Thus, the problem with Pharaoh was not simply that he was a slaveholder, although that was bad enough, but that he was preventing God's children from serving their father. In fact, the word here, let my son go that he may serve me, that's the same word that was used back in chapter 1 to describe Pharaoh enslaving Israel. By enslaving Israel, Pharaoh placed not only placed himself between God and his children, but he stole from God the rightful service and worship he deserves. This is a paternity battle, in other words, between who has the right to rule Israel, who has, who is the real father in this case? Is it Pharaoh or is it the Lord? That's what's at stake. And it's really no question, if you've been reading the story, Israel is God's firstborn son, not Pharaoh. Pharaoh stole them. They are God's firstborn son, not in terms of chronology, like which child came first type thing, but it's a phrase that refers to preeminence and priority. It is God who made them. It is God who revealed himself to them, who made his promise with them, who chose them to be his special people, his treasured possession among all nations. It is God who has protected and provided from them from the time of their ancestors to this day. They are his children. They belong to him. He is their father. And the nature of that relationship is what fuels his passion to save them and fixes his resolve to bring their assailants to justice. If you have ever lost your child at a park or a grocery store or a mall, you know the panic that ensues in that moment as you go through all of the scenarios of what might possibly happen to them. What father would not move heaven and earth to rescue his child and bring their captors to justice? When you think about the Exodus story in those categories, God as the father, Israel as his child, Pharaoh as the one who has kidnapped, enslaved, tortured, and oppressed God's child. 
it's not hard to understand why God acts so passionately and so decisively both to rescue his son and to bring their captors to justice. His wrath flows out of his love. And all of that revolves around his relationship with his son, his firstborn son, Israel. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you will not let my son go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel, God's message uh, to Pharaoh almost feels like that scene in, with Liam Neeson in Taken where he says, you know, I have a very particular set of skills, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. God is passionate about delivering his son. And yet, God's passion is not the unrestrained passions of an enraged father bent on vengeance. That's not what, what's happening here. His words to Pharaoh are the judicious words, not only of a loving father, but also of a cosmic judge. God's promise to punish Pharaoh is not about revenge. It's about justice. It's about justice, true justice. Eye for eye, son for son. You took my son, now I will take yours. And what you will learn is that I am the Lord and you are not and you are not allowed to play God with my children or anybody else. That's what God is doing. That's what God is teaching Pharaoh through his act of deliverance of Israel. And so understanding Israel's identity as God's son is absolutely crucial to understanding what he's doing in this story and why. It's his relationship. It's their role. Israel's identity as God's son, it helps us understand his, his passion for rescuing them and his vigilance in judging their enemies. But it also un- helps us understand better what God is saving Israel for. So not just the relationship, but not just their own benefit, but because they have a role to play in the world as God's firstborn son. And we're reminded of what that role is and how significant it is in this next scene and the not-so-funny thing that happened on the way to Egypt. So verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, maybe Moses, maybe his son, we're not sure who the him there is, but the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now these three verses are, without a doubt, the most confusing three verses in the entire book of Exodus, in my opinion. Uh, There is so much here that is not clear that it's hard to know what to say if you can say anything. Why would God all of a sudden decide to put Moses to death after he spent so much time trying to convince him to actually go? Uh, Why didn't they talk about this thing about the circumcision sooner? Why, Why wasn't that a subject at the burning bush? Who's he actually seeking to destroy here? Is it Moses or is it his son? 
The Hebrew is ambiguous. How did Zipporah know what to do in order to address the crisis? Is this when Moses, afterwards, is this when Moses sends back his wife and children back to their father-in-law? At some point in the story, he does that. Is this when that happens? And what in the world is a bridegroom of blood? I don't have answers to any of those questions. No clue. What we can say, though, here, is a, I do think we can say a couple of things. Uh, that the crisis clearly has to do with the issue of circumcision and the problem that Moses' son had not yet been circumcised. And that that problem was so big that God was willing to kill Moses over it. That does seem to be what's happening there. And there are a couple of things that I I think we can say in light of that. First, it shows us that God takes the sin of his own children just as serious as the sin of their enemies. When God made his covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 17, that, that he would be their God, and, and Abraham and his descendants would be his people, and Abraham would become the father of a multitude of nations. Uh, he gave them the sign of circumcision, that every male would be circumcised on the eighth day, and that no uncircumcised male would be allowed into the assembly of Israel. So Moses, by not circumcising his son, risks not merely forfeiting his mission, but forfeiting his own life. If you thought that God was soft on Israel and harsh on Egypt, that's not how it works. Israel's guilt has to be dealt with as well. In this case, it's the blood of circumcision that addresses the problem. Later in the plague of the firstborn, it will be the blood of the lamb that addresses the problem. But God takes the sin of his people just as serious as he takes the sin of their enemies. So that's the first observation. The second is that this event reminds us that Israel's identity as God's son is not just about the benefits of their relationship with him. It's not just about what they get out of it. It's also about their role in the world as his children. God saves his son that they might serve him. As the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they have been chosen by God to be his special people. And yet the reason God chose Israel was so that all nations might be blessed. The covenant of circumcision reminds us of that. That's where Abraham was told he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And so that means that not only does Pharaoh need to learn to take seriously Israel's identity as God's son, And let them go. Israel has to learn to take seriously their own identity as well. That they too have work to do as servants of God. And what's about to happen is not just for them. God's not rescuing them from Egypt so they can kick back in luxury and self-indulgence. He's not bailing his trust fund baby out of prison so he can sit mojitos on the golf course. That's not what he's doing. They have a mission. They have a role to do. He's saving them so that they might serve him. He's saving them for his own glory. That they might do their part to display his glory and advance his kingdom on earth. And and this is where some of the 
important parallels between God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt and his saving work in Christ come to play. If you think about it, God takes our identity as his children deeply seriously. He has, in fact, already moved heaven and earth in order to save us. Jesus rent the heavens and came down in the incarnation that he might be with us and rescue us. That's the length to which God was willing to go to save his children. And he does this not just so that we can avoid a punishment in hell and and milk as much out of this world as we can before we go to heaven. He does this because we have work to do as his sons and daughters. God, When God made Adam, he made him to be a servant of his kingdom. When he chose Israel, he, he chose them to do what Adam had failed to do, that they would be representatives of his kingdom on earth. And even as Israel ultimately failed that role, Jesus came to then not only fulfill it, but to call us to walk in that role as well, to be the kind of people God made us to be. We have a role, a responsibility to be servants of God's kingdom, not to no longer serve sin or be enslaved to sin, but to be free to serve our Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul describes it like this in Romans 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, your sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Christ, we have a new identity. We have a new identity. We are children of God. What was true of ancient Israel becomes true of everyone who places their faith in Christ. Jesus, who came into the world as God's eternal son to do for us and for Israel what we could never do for ourselves, to be the perfect, faithful covenant son we were supposed to be but failed to be. Jesus is that true son. He's the the true and better son, the true and better Israel. And because he lived that perfect life and took the punishment of our sin on himself as the true Passover lamb, because he is that savior, all who are united with him by faith become children of God. He shares his identity with us. He fulfills Israel's identity as the son, and then he shares that identity with us who believe in him. We become children of God, and if sons, then heirs. We have an inheritance in heaven. And if sons, then also servants. Through our union with Christ, we have a new identity as children, and therefore we have a new vocation 
servants of God, servants of his kingdom. And it's a service that's not driven by fear. So it's not the kind of slavery uh, that Israel was used to under Pharaoh, where if I, if I do this, I won't be punished. If I don't do this, I will. That's not the kind of service we offer to God. It's a service that flows out of our relationship with him as his children. Obeying God not to try and earn his, his acceptance or out of fear what he will do to us, but rather obeying God out of love for our Father. Verse 18, Romans 8, uh, 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so just as, as everything revolved around Israel's relationship with God as their child, so everything in our relationship with God revolves around who we are in Christ as his children. We have been adopted into his family. And so it's our relationship with him that motivates our love and service. And God is jealous to protect that relationship. He is jealous to protect that identity, that we would live in accordance with it, and that anything that would seek to get come between us and him would be avoided and dealt with. So taking our identity as God's children seriously means that we need to take the threat of sin seriously. Sin is our old master. We have been set free, and we are not to, to give into its ways anymore. We must deal judiciously with sin when we find ourselves tempted. Uh, Jesus makes this point in Matthew 18, verse 8, using a little hyperbole to make a pretty big point. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or maimed than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. Again, that's hyperbole, but it's hyperbole to make a point. That's how potentially damaging sin is. That's how enslaving it is. And we must deal judiciously with it as a threat to our identity and role as God's children. And we need to recognize that God will deal judiciously when with sin, when others tempt his children. So it's not just a a vigilance we must have in our relationship. There's a vigilance that God has to protect our relationship, just as he did with Pharaoh. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 5, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. God takes the relationship with his children, seriously. And he is seriously vigilant about guarding them from temptation and sin and dealing justly with those who would seek to come between them and their God. That's a big deal to God. And so we must take our identity as his children seriously. We have a relationship, a unique relationship through Christ and a special role to play But what truly motivates that kind of proper vigilance uh, against sin is not fear. It's not fear. That's enslaving. What truly motivates a proper vigilance to say no to sin and yes to God 
is our love for God. That's what motivates it. That's back, it comes right back to that relationship as children. Loving God more than I love my sin. That's the formula. That I would know God and love him more than I love my sin. And being confident of his unbreakable love for me. Paul puts it this way at the end of chapter 8. That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God that caused him to move heaven and earth to rescue his firstborn son. The love of God that causes him to move heaven and earth to claim our love for himself. The love of God that has shown itself preeminently in the cross of Christ There's nothing that can break God's love for his children. And when we understand that, when when we take that on board, how can we go on serving sin instead of serving God? God is serious about his relationship with his children. He wants us to be serious about that relationship as well. He will move heaven and earth to save his children, and he does so that we might serve him. Let's pray. Lord, how absolutely and utterly incredible is your love for us in Christ. Lord, I I confess that I have such a small view of your love. When I can allow little things to come between me and you, little things that uh, make me want to serve something else instead of you. Lord, I confess that that comes out of a shallow view of your love. And so I pray for my own heart and for all of us that you would expand our vision to see your love for what it truly is, to understand more deeply our identity as your children, what that cost you, And how deeply you longed for it that you would send your son to rescue us. Lord, would you help us to take on board the gravity of your love and the gravity of our identity as your children that we might love and serve you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.